with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Nightmare. Good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Welcome to Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick. But before we get into the show, I have some breaking news. Uh, I just come off the wire. Cedric Lodge, the head of the Harvard Harvard College morgue was arrested for selling body parts uh, to various, along with a bunch of other people, including Creepy Dolls Creations and uh, a woman in Salem. So there you go. Uh, Victorian times are back again. Uh, Also selling body parts across time, uh, across state lines as i'm reading this article that's why i'm kind of messing it up but it's pretty pretty weird i i I just like i don't know whether to be amazed or just thing uh it's just you've got to make make a buck includes heads brains skin bones okay so anyways uh joining me is of course is the ghost standard and ghost hunting mr steve parson good evening you've got to make a buck cost of living yeah, in Salem, Mass. You probably went to that shop. You probably bought something there. Uh, I guess some course. Yeah, we have a store over here. It's called the Body Shop. Very popular. Mm. Oh, where they get their parts? That's what I want to know. Well, it's all fragrances, as uh, as our guest would confirm. It's a very popular store in the UK. It is. Yeah. Yeah. The they, uh, we have a store called the Body Shop. But is it? Is it? Body parts. I don't know. They're okay. not saying, and I'm not asking. Yeah. Cats Creepy Creations is one place, another place for include creepy, another place called Creepy Dolls in Salem. I know so, where that is. So there you go. You probably got your Annabelle there. Hey. Mm-hmm. Anyway. Thought, yeah, moving on. Yeah, moving on. I, I just, I'm just like amazed at the story. It's just. Like, I'm amazed that you survived your surgery. I'm pleased, yeah. but amazed. Well, I could have, that could, could have been selling my body parts. Well, I could have been speaking to you from the other side. Oh, I was somebody's store. <laughs> <laughs> by, by the Welcome way, if, if, if I had gone, uh, I would have come up with a new podcast, by the way, which would have been called Ron from Beyond. Not dining with the dead. You know, Ryan from beyond. Anyway, we do have a guest, yeah, and he do. is he's one of your your fellow countrymen, uh, Mr. Uh, Graham Phillips. Yeah. Graham, you there? I am indeed. Yeah, so. All I can do is apologize about my co-host, Graham. He's from America. Oh, cool. I just heard somebody say that they could hear me because I have a funny accent. <laughs> that would be. That would be me. Yeah, uh, that'd be that'd be <laughs> that'd be the American. So, did you <laughs> did you hear my my little breaking news about the guy selling more body parts to stores? Yes, I did, and also what's 
Steve, Stephen, Steve or Stephen, is it? Steve. Whatever you want. Oh, the only Steve. person who's ever called me Stephen was my mother, and I knew he was in trouble. Oh, I okay, then. You that. <laughs> Steve, yeah, he was talking about the body shop in the UK. It sells perfumes. There aren't any body parts in there, as far as I That's enough. what they tell us, Graham. That's what they tell us. That's probably, I've never been in one, so I wouldn't know. That that's uh you know that's that's the British sense of humor I guess. So this shop in Salem sells yes. creepy dolls. Yes. Well, that's cool. But this guy did he get arrested for selling creepy dolls or actual body parts? Actual body parts. He he he's the head of the morgue at Harvard uh, College School College. Oh right, so he was getting them from like from from the the cadavers that the. Uh, the surgeons yes. train on or whatever. Yeah, they don't. Yeah, they donated to the college, and then he was selling head and brain, skin and bones, and all over the country to these creepy creation doll shops and. Yeah, cats. but I, just jumping in, you can up until a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. um, and in fact, you can go into a. There are several stores. There's one in Bath, England, mm-hmm. um, but up until a couple of years ago, you could buy human body parts on eBay. It's not illegal to sell them here in the UK. Uh, I I mean, it might be different in New England, but is this crime because they were donated for medical research and therefore, you know, if you donate your body to medical research, the agreement is... Well, he stole them. That's what the medical crime is. The crime (laughs) is stealing them because it's not a crime to sell skulls or... Skeletons. In fact, you can still go into a medical supply shop in the UK and buy an entire human skeleton. Yeah, but also uh, it's illegal to transport human parts over the over state lines, and here in the states, well, we haven't got state lines here in the UK. Well, that's your problem, not mine. Well, how do they? Maybe have... it's illegal to sell them to Scotland or Wales. Mm. Everything's illegal in Wales and the Mark Drakeford. <laughs> I mean, there's one guy he sold them to uh, who makes uh, different uh, art out of bones. So there you go. I mean, I know people, and Steve, I know you know too, people that own body parts. I mean, Christian Day owns a skull. Well, I own two. What was that, Steve? I said, Ann has two. Oh, so there you go. See? Don't talk about that next there you go. Well next week's subject is human skulls on your mantelpiece. Anyways, so Graham, yeah, do you have any uh, do, you have any, do you have any body parts in your, your house you want to talk us about? No, but when I was a kid, in my grandmother's house under the under the stairs was a whole skeleton in a box. It belonged to my uncle, who was a doctor, and that was what he had to actually buy a real skeleton. When they were training, they didn't have plastic ones, like they might have now, and it just stayed in his mother's house in a box under the stairs. And when I was a kid, I used to play with these bones, just thinking they were sort of like I don't know what I thought they were, but it was only years later I discovered it was an actual human skeleton. It's kind of cool. I mean, this story, this story is kind of like intriguing, and you know. You modified it in a way, but you're also like, I mean, especially Steve and I, and I'm sure Graham, you deal with these, 
people that own body pots and uh you know it's it's kind of like a i don't know they people collect you know those haunted museums and stuff have their own body pots and stuff and everything so i mean i don't know anybody who's got any apart from my uncle who was a doctor so he's uh, allowed to have it ron 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 knows somebody that's got one don't you ron well apart from the jawbone anyway i wouldn't know haven't seen it liar I used to have a saying when I was a kid, when I used to look into my at my teeth in the mirror and think, hold on, that's part of my skeleton. And I yes. started going around telling everybody that inside every good man and all woman, there's a skull screaming to get out. And one day I, it worked. I like that. That works. Good. I don't think you can <laughs> say that anymore, Graham. It might be transphobic. Yeah. Well, to, I said, no, man and all woman. And yeah, and or and or uh, binary, non-binary. Inside every mammal, there is a skull. That'll do. Screaming That'll do. That works. That works. Yeah, I agree with it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, just just uh, for my own edification, I know that Steve lives in Wales. Uh, Grant, where are you from? Birmingham, which is smack bang in the middle of England. Ah. All right, they all talk like that in Birmingham, except Graham. I used to talk like that, but then oh, I had to kick out of my, when I went to school. All my ancestors were from Dudley. Ah, well, there you go. Then that's the, that's uh, very close. Yes, we all we all speak like that, except for me now, because they sent me to a military boarding school. Uh, oh, lucky you! <laughs> it was kicked out of me. You don't speak in that voice. What I like, I want to speak like this. This is yeah. how I was brought There's up. There's nothing wrong with speaking. In fact, we'll do the rest of the show in drum. <laughs> so, so Graham, how did you uh, get involved in, uh, first year an author, you've written uh, several yeah, books. Tell them who the guest is, Ron. Yes, I did. It started off, <laughs> It Graham. might be an idea. <laughs> Graham Phillips, I did that. I, I started off he in the did, beginning. He did say it's Graham Phillips. You listened to me. God bless you. Uh, but anyway, so what was your attraction to what you do, which is, what, well, basically, what the hell do you do besides my book? <laughs> well, it's, I used to be, going back years, 40 years ago, I was a journalist working for the BBC, radio journalist. And um, I got a job shortly after that as an editor of a magazine called Strange Phenomena. which was basically investigating the paranormal and all different aspects of it. And during an investigation that we were conducting, and probably because we used to have so many, the headquarters or the offices of the magazine were in Wolverhampton, very even closer to Dudley. Yeah. And um, in the middle of Wolverhampton in this old Victorian house was the uh, offices of the magazine. And probably because we had loads of mediums coming there and everyone was doing seances and stuff like this, um, the place started itself to get haunted. I mean, it started with strange smoke suddenly appearing in every room in the building pretty much simultaneously. We thought the place was on fire, but nothing could be found to account for it. And this kind of kept happening for about five minutes every day. Smoke would appear all over the place. At roughly the same time, just as it was getting dark at around five o'clock in the afternoon. And it just kept happening for for about a week. And eventually the local press got hold of this story and people came around and said, oh, you're just making this up to publicise the magazine. 
And even the BBC News team with the cameras and everything filmed all this. And of course, that attracted a lot of attention. But that was just the start of it. After this, we had um, people started claiming to see strange figures wandering around. Uh, a guy in a Victorian sort of coat and a top hat would appear to people. I witnessed something once, which was just weird, when a big box of magazines that was down one end of a corridor went flying past me and into a door, even when I, you know, and even when I was alone in the building, that happened. So it, it, so that's how I kind of got interested in this stuff originally. Mm-hmm. And and you're a prolific writer. I can see you got like I can't even count the number of books, but it's quite Thank a few. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, over the well. I mean, I, the first book I wrote was called The Green Stone, which was a kind of paranormal story associated with all the, you know, real life paranormal um, account based on the strange things that were happening to us in this uh, in the headquarters of this magazine. And then after that, I thought, well, I'll probably start to write about something halfway more sensible because you can't really start. In, the problem with investigating the paranormal is very often it. It's it, it's you probably unless you're really lucky and you live in an Amateurville house, you can't get more than half a chapter out of a one case. So I started investigating historical mysteries like was there a, was there a, a say again, sorry? I have no idea what that was. What, what was I somebody else it. speaking. Yeah, Go. you didn't hear that voice? No. Nope. I did hear the voice. I thought it was one of you saying something. No, nope. wasn't me. Wasn't me. And anyway, so I investigate historical mysteries, King Arthur, the Holy Grail and stuff like this. And um, so that's the 20 books I've written are pretty much about historical mysteries. But the latest one is all about a a big haunted house in northern Staffordshire near Stoke-on-Trent. It's a building I know quite well. I, uh, in my former life as a nurse... Um, we we would take patients down there for orthopaedic surgery, or well, it was not. It was an orth- yeah, it was an orthopaedic hospital up till it the, was indeed. It, you, it was well. It's it's one of the things that uh, I mean. Maybe you heard these tales yourself, but I was speaking to a lady only two days ago who used to work as a nurse there. I mean, it was originally a Victorian house where this very rich family called the Batemans and then another rich family called the Heaths live. Mm-hmm. But from the 1920s, it was turned into a hospital. That's right. And now it's open to the public, or at least the grounds are. It's owned by the National Trust. But there was this lady who used to be a nurse there, and she was telling me all sorts of weird tales about uh, this white lady who used to, uh, well, one of the ca- ca- uh, accounts was that um, this white lady helped save a man's life. He was on a some kind of respirator, an iron lung, I think they used to call them. And it was malfunctioning. This is way back in the 60s. It was malfunctioning, but obviously the alarm didn't go off. But the nurse who was sitting outside looked through into the into the ward and saw this woman who appeared to be dressed in like old fashioned clothes standing next to this bed and waiting for the nurse to come over. When she got there, this woman just wasn't there to be seen, only to find out that the... Uh, the respirator thing had been turned off or accidentally failed and the ghost had saved his life, apparently. Um, 
it was a story that I was aware of um, because I, because I've always been fascinated with ghosts. When we used to do the patient transfers uh, for the procedures, we would come down from because I was at a hospital on on the Wirral, so we would take the patients down to uh, I can't remember what it was. Called. I think it was North Staffs Orthopaedic, uh, but it was Biddulph Grange. And inevitably, while you're waiting, you're talking to the staff and with my interest. And I I used to, I don't know of a single hospital that I've ever worked in or visited as a a visitor or visited, you know, for whatever reason. And in fact, I don't know a single nurse that doesn't have a first person ghost story. But anyway, um, that was the story they told. And the version I heard was remarkably similar to what you just said um the the patient was supposed to be a polio patient in the version i heard this took place in the late 50s or early 60s and the figure was described to me now this wasn't a first person account this was the the story that was going around the hospital at the time um of a matron in uh an older nurse's uniform. Yes. It was variously described as pre-war or interwar, um, but she, you know, a hospital sort of senior nurse. So it is, you know, I mean, these stories do change over time anyway, but it is a oh, very yeah. similar, very similar version to the version that I was told while I was there. It's, you know, these stories are like the uh, the old game where, you you know, you tell a cigarette one side of the line and you can pass it down, whisper it in everybody's ear. By the time you come down, it comes up a little different than when it started. So that, that's understandable in, in a lot of cases. So, Graham, I mean, that yeah, that's, uh, you know, an intriguing. That's your is that your latest book, right? Yeah, I mean, it, the, 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 it's the it's based on the whole history of this uh house that became the hospital eventually when it was a, um, a mansion in victorian times the people who built it were known as the bateman family the um they were very rich industrialists the husband james bateman was fascinated by horticulture so he traveled around the world collecting loads of plant specimens having them shipped back to england to be planted in the gardens around the house he'd built bidolf grange and they, he laid out, or at least on his behalf, these gardeners laid out these astonishing gardens. And his wife, Maria, was left behind to sort all this out. And in the 1850s, she decided to build what people had thought were just ornamental garden features. But there seemed to be more to it than this. They built a mock Egyptian tomb. They built a mock Chinese uh, shrine like a pagoda and bridges and a sacred pond. They created a, um, a, a Celtic sanctuary, as they called it, or a Celtic glen, which consisted of a, a sacred spring or holy well, and also standing stones, which they brought from a nearby stone circle that a local priest had told his congregation was evil and should be knocked down. So because it was on the land of the Bateman family, they decided to move some of these stone circle stones into this Celtic shrine as they were building. They also, under the house, had a Roman te- uh, catacomb, as it was described, or temple built, um, with 
uh, with um, coffins that they brought back from Rome. Um, I don't know if there was any bodies in them, that the, the coffins still survive in the Stoke-on-Trent Potteries Museum. But they basically were doing, you know, they, these were clearly not just garden features. And the investigation that I managed to carry out with my co-author, Jodie Russell, who wrote the book with me, and did all the research as well, um, that these people were massively into the into the occult and mysticism and uh, spiritualism, all that sort of thing, which was began to become very popular at that time. And local magazines of the time refer to them getting up to all sorts of strange and weird rituals in these various temples or shrines in the garden. And people, even today, I mean, on the BBC the other week, there was a program about how in uh, these gardens have been reconstructed to be like they were originally in Victorian times and open to the public. And if, on the TV, the gardeners who were working on this thing and the people who were reconstructing some of these old temples said, it's really weird. While we were doing it, we heard strange whispering sounds. I've met three or four people who claim to have seen people who appear to be in Victorian clothes walking around the Chinese shrine and they've tried to find out who these people are and they just disappear. So it's got a history going way back. Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm particularly intrigued by um, the secret society because um, I couldn't find it. Um, I've got a, a directory of the occult societies that was published in 1897, and there is no mention of this organ of this uh, Meonia. Meonia, I, I think. Meonia. Um, but there is just there is just no no mention of it and i can't find any mention of it until i think the 80, 1980s um when there was a couple of books written about it that mentioned this this particular society how did you actually locate them because i mean hermetic societies were incredibly popular with the um upper classes in the, in the 19th century but this one seems to have gone right under the radar well, it's probably because it was the first of them. It was founded as far. We managed to find various. I mean, unfortunately, most of the work that was done by them, most of the writings were kept private. They were in the house in Bidolf Grange in 1896 when the place burnt to the ground. It had to be rebuilt. Uh-huh. And a lot of the writings concerning it seemed to be lost then. We managed to trace certain um uh, there was a memorial pamphlet that was actually one of the people who had lived at Vidolf Grange, a woman called Mary Heath. When she died in the 1870s, 25 years later, they held a memorial service to her. And there was this memorial pamphlet which did survive um, that the National Trust found in one of the descendants of the Heath family. Mm-hmm. And it does reference what they call the Meaniah siblings or the Order of Nehemiah, um, and it says that Mary Heath was a member of it and that Laura Heath was a member of it, which is her sister-in-law. They're the Heath family that lived there after the Batemans. They were close friends of the Batemans. But the reason it, it remained totally secret, it was like the first of these secret societies. All the others, like the Theosophical Society, the Golden Dawn, 
the um, the Sphere Group and all these other ones that came later, Stella Machtina, they all came after this. And most of them, these groups, seem to have been founded by people such as Florence Farr, who flat founded the Sphere Group mm -hmm. and was also a big part of the Golden Dawn, were all originally had some association with or were members, it seems, of the Order of Nehemiah. So it seems to have remained secret because it intended to, and it was the first of these groups. And right. when it all split up, they all went off and started founding their own other ones. So it's kind of like the original. Well, how did, I mean, so the only mention, if I've got this right, was, was the pamphlet that, that was found. The only mention is the pamphlet. That is the only historical oh. reference. Else is basically put together by deduction mm -hmm. because as i say there is no mention of them um you know the, I, I think there's about 70 or 80 hermetic orders societies affiliations um in this 1897 publication which claims to be definitive i mean obviously it's not um but this one escaped Slipped under the radar it's, for some it, reason. It's, not only did it escape, but they their intention when they set when they started off, um, from what we can gather, and the, the little bit that's revealed in this memorial pamphlet, says that they wanted to try and improve the lot for women. Now, all the people associated with Bidolf Grange were into early um, suffragism. It's not the same as suffragettes; they're suffragists. There were women who want that the suffragettes were were quite happy to break the law to try and get the votes for women. This was earlier than that. And the suffragists were they wanted to work peacefully to bring about the, mm -hmm. the rights of women, but not just voting rights. Originally, first wave feminism began in 1851 with a woman, um, Barbara um, Beauchamp, I think you pronounce the name. I always get it wrong. And she was, she lived very close to Bidolf Grange in nearby Leek. Um, and she was a close friend of Laura Heath. Uh, sorry, a close friend of, sorry, Maria Bateman, who was the lady who was erecting all these, um, all these uh, shrines throughout the gardens. So and Graham, it seems I'm, I'm like... Graham, I'm going to have to interrupt you right here because we're coming up on the break. So uh, I do want to. By the way, you have a brilliant voice. I would think I would probably sell my soul for your voice, but that's all right. We can swap this guy. Okay, there you go. Anyways, you're listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Steve Parson and Ron Kolick right here on Tojanet Radio and wherever you get your podcast. Our special guest is uh, Graham Phillips. And we're brought to you by Circles of Wisdom. 286 Memorex Street, Dillon, Massachusetts, the Glant Messier Family Law Group, 15 High Street, North End of Massachusetts, and our very, very good friends at Ghost Chronicles Radio on Patreon. So become a Ghost Chronicles Patreon member. We'll be right back after the following messages.
Welcome to Toginet, radio with a cutting edge. Do you have a paranormal event, book, or something else you want people to know about? Then why not advertise it on Ghost Chronicles Radio? With over 150,000 downloads a month, get your message out to an audience that's interested in the subject. We have a plan at a cost that fits your needs. For more information, contact Ron Kolick at anyghostproject at comcast.net or call 978-455-6678. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk ugly kooky, the Parrax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parrax family. They're strange. Unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew. It's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the Parrax family. Welcome back to the second half of the first half of tonight's so our Ghost Chronicles double edition. This is the international edition with New England's own Van Helsing and here in West Wales, the Broomy. Well, I'm not a Broomy. My family were originally from there. Um, the gold standard and our special guest tonight, Graham Phillips, international author and paranormal researcher and appearer on lots of television shows who's talking about his search for the heart of the rose. Which rose? The rose. Oh. Graham, you still with us? I'm still there. Uh, yeah. yeah, we we haven't we haven't scared you off yet. That's pretty good. Before we forget, uh, Graham, how can people uh, find out more information about you? Well, my website, GrahamPhillips.net has got basically everything on it. You look at the first page, it shows you my books. You can click on one of the books and read all about each one. Not the entire story, but everything's in there plus photographs and pictures of what they're all about. Mm. And also any links to my YouTube and everything else. So just remember grahamphillips.net. It's an honor to have you on. Thank you, sir. Uh, is that is that really you or is that a glamour shot, by the way? I'm seeing it on Skype. So. That's an old picture of me. I'm an old man now. I just haven't <laughs> ever got around to changing that. <laughs> okay, you sound like me now. All right, uh, Steve, you had a question before I interrupted well, you. Yeah, no, it's about, this, it's about the secret society, the me and I group. Oh, you uh, like that one, huh? I do. Um, <laughs> because from what I can gather, they were um, they were collectors of weird stuff and ephemera. Not body parts, I don't think. Well, I don't know. Let's ask Graham. Um, but they were they they gathered things together. Um, yeah, they what they discovered. Um, one of the things that they found on, on the land that belonged to Bidolf Grange, um, there was a old ruined uh, priory, an ecclesiastical building, an old ruined chapel 
known as Springwood uh, Priory, and it was on their land, and it had been there as a ruin for ages. They decided to excavate this place, and this is the Bateman family were the first ones that were had built a bit off Grange in the 1850s, and they discovered an old uh, vault underneath it with loads of Knights Templar remains in it. Now they may well, they must have taken they, what they did, and this this was uh, recorded in the local church, St Lawrence Church. Um, um, their records is that James Bateman had these Knights Templar remains reburied in what was still consecrated ground at uh, Bidolf Church, and he had all the coffin lids of these Knights Templars placed all around the church where they're now used as seats. So you've got all these really old, probably dating from the 1100s, early Templar grave, um, uh, coffin lids all around the church, um, sort of held up by blocks of stone and used as seats. It's most bizarre. So they, they got they got those. They also claimed to have found various um, historical items in there, which they never actually re reveal what they were. This is the Bateman family. We can only assume that this was part of what they were using for the Meaniah rituals, but we don't know for certain. Also, the Heaths and the Batemans and other members or people who frequented the house very often, uh, most of them, a lot of them were pre-Raphaelite painters because James Bateman's son, Robert, was a, a, a quite a relatively famous pre-Raphaelite painter and a number of other pre-Raphaelite painters such as uh, Gabriel Rossetti and um, Jane Morris, uh, the, 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 the wife of William Morris, the famous textile designer. Um, she was a frequent visitor to Bidolf Grange and these um, pre-Raphaelite people um, were going to Bidolf Grange they quite often uh, talked about all the various items that they had there, including and some and then the paintings as well that they did of um, of these various items, including coffins that came from ancient Rome, Greek um, Greek statues, and they went around the world collecting stuff, Chinese um, dragons and a big bowl which is a, with a phoenix on the side of it. And they're all, they're gathering basically sacred items from all over the world, a lot of which are still there. Fascinating. So what happened but, to the society? Well, in 1897, six, sorry, the place burnt to the ground. And it's then that they seem to have sort of packed it up because in this memorial pamphlet, it says that we can no longer meet here. We can no longer continue with what they call the fates. I don't know what that, that is, I assume, we assumed at one time that might have been a kind of whatever rituals they were performing or whatever they were doing. But I thought a fate was a, a fear in, in, in the UK. Well, that's it. That this in a, in a particular magazine that mm -hmm. was a gardening magazine that was written in the 1860s, um, there's a guy there writes a series of articles, a, guy called Kemp he was like a he came from Liverpool um, he was a, a, a top gardening expert he wrote for this magazine 
And in it, he talks about um, the various items that they had in these uh, shrines, which is much more than there is today. And he talks about them. They were used for fates, F-E-T-E-S, which basically means like, I don't know, like a medieval fairs sort of thing. And we thought, well, that's probably what they were telling people when they saw them dressed up in strange robes. I mean, the 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 lady I was telling you about, this feminist, uh, Barbara Beauchamp, she was also a, a painter and she painted a picture of one of these meetings. And they're all dressed in the hoods and like druids, I suppose you'd, you'd call them. And um, what was interesting is in the memorial pamphlet, they write the word as F-A-T-E-S, fates. So maybe this guy, guy who wrote for the gardening magazine had heard people say, oh, yeah, the fates. Well, the fates that all I know that could refer to is the three goddesses of fate, which are above uh, above all the gods of ancient uh, Greece. They basically have control. It's a, a young woman, a middle aged woman and an old woman. Three of these um, demigods, if you like, called fates. And they control fate and everything that goes on in the world. And they're even even Zeus is answerable to them. And everything that they all of their shrines that they built have a, a lot of them have these um, statues. One of that are still there, for example, in the Egyptian statue in the Egyptian tomb, there's a character a creature called the ape of Thoth or Arne. In ancient Egyptian religion, he was the spirit of fate above and beyond all the gods. He was like the trickster of the gods, like Loki, if you like, from Norse tradition and the fool in Western mythology. And you've then got a, in, in the Chinese garden, there's a strange um, sort of juxtaposition by having another Egyptian figure there, which is known a big uh, golden uh, bull, which is actually gold paint. It's made from bronze. It's a bull, uh, it's a bull with horns with a, a sun disk between its horns known as the Apis bull. And it in ancient Egypt seems to have control over fate. So it does seem that they their whole intention seems to have been to control destiny and fate. And if I'm right about the kind of people who are involved in it, they seem to want to make things better for women. And women in the world at that time had very few rights, even in the Western world. Women couldn't own property. A wife with a husband was allowed to beat, beat his wife. They couldn't own their own uh, possessions. They, they, they all belonged to the husband, father, brother, or near relative. And it was only after eight in the 1850s that these things began to change for women throughout the world. Uh, not just in Britain, but in America and other places in the world. And I don't know, it's just a guess, but it, it makes me wonder if they were trying to control fate so that men in positions of power, who were the governments in all these countries, would start to look more fondly upon women. And, and they did. By the end of the century, by the time the order packed up in 1896, women hadn't quite got the vote then, but it wasn't long afterwards. But a lot of the, the laws in Britain and America and elsewhere did change to allow women ownership of property, to run a business and uh, many things like this. So that's what they seem to have been trying to do. But 
one of the things that intrigues me as well is there seems to be a legacy into the present because both you and your co-author describe in the book a number of bizarre experiences, profound experiences that you had whilst you were um, researching the book. Yeah, it was just odd. I mean, none of this can I prove, but we went to um, the place where, the, do you remember I said that they took some some standing stones from a nearby yeah. stone circle? Next to that, there's a, an old tomb. It was thought to be contemporary with the stone circle, perhaps 3,000 or more years old, but it's more likely now to have been about 1,500 years old and been the burial place of perhaps one of the last druidesses in Britain that had actually come to Britain from Ireland, but that's a whole historical story. I won't bother boring you with that. But when we went there, what happened was that there was this sudden thunderstorm that took place. It was a nice sunny day. Suddenly there was a thunderstorm and the clouds seemed to be only just above us in the moorlands where we were. Um, not direct, not only above us, but in that area where everywhere around seemed quite sunny and still. And during this five minute flash thunderstorm, um, I was filming and the, the camera just went completely weird. There was like a light came across it. We got someone to look at this and they thought it was probably electrical interference from the storm. But th then the storm just went. Now, after that, we went back to Bidolf Grange, which is only a couple of miles away, and we were talking to one of the um, guides there about the fire, that until this point, our research and everywhere we'd looked, in books and online and everywhere else, had said that the fire had been in 1897. We'd even seen reference to it being in 1897 in the Bidolf Grange itself. When we went back, we were talking about this and, she, and the lady said, oh, no, no, it was 1896. The house was rebuilt in 1997. I said, no, no, no. And we looked at this uh, picture of the, the, the grange that was on the wall there, the grange after the fire, and the heading underneath it said the fire of 1896. And I thought, what? How could we both be so wrong? But the thing is, we spoke to two or three other people I know who had done research into it, who said, no, it was 1897, it's not anymore. Anyway, we just thought we must have made a, a big mistake. But then other things started changing, almost as if we'd shifted to another world. We went to see um, a guy who, uh, it's a, it was actually a completely different case we were investigating, um, who took us around an old house that, um, had, it was fascinating because this old house that was um, not far from Bidolf Grange, but it uh, was called uh, Ranton Abbey. Um, in the in the grounds of Ranton Abbey, there was this other house that was being refurbished in the 1960s. Um, and it was half finished when the workmen apparently claimed they weren't going to go there anymore. Nobody wanted to go inside because strange things happened. We were trying to find out more about this. Now, this guy, before we'd gone to this stone circle with this tomb area and this um, thunderstorm would happen, we'd gone there and the, the, the guy who was like in charge of the estate that this was on took us round um, the, 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 this building that had been kind of left, half turned into flats 
uh, apartments back in the 1960s and it was really weird you got these uh, it was like a half finished house it was just really weird he took us around this thing and he said i don't know i can't really prove that there was any ghosts here but that's the story mm-hmm. anyway we went back to see him because he said he said he could show us around again any time and we went back there i'd filmed it the first time going around when we went back he didn't even know who we were i said well, it's graham and jody you know we, we spoke to you a few weeks back Nah, no nah, that's not me he thought oh, well maybe he's i don't know maybe just didn't didn't want to take us around this place again and he said no no i'll show you around i'll show you where it is so he kind of followed him in his land rover and drove on all these little roads to get to it and when we got there the whole place was boarded up with metal shutters and things over all the windows and we looked at it and we said well can we go in again he said oh it's been boarded up for years but you showed us round <laughs> and he said no it's been boarded up for years and you could tell from the screws and uh, were all rusted away on, on on the walls where they put these metal shutters over the windows, and I even showed him. I'd actually got on my phone video footage I'd taken of the inside of the place, and he said, "Oh, you shouldn't have been in there. How did you get in? You showed us inside." <laughs> so I mean, Steve. it was almost as if we jumped into another universe. I mean, I can't prove, well, I can prove we were inside I know this what, place. I know, but, yeah, I know what. Steve, that's right up your alley, right? Not just right up the alley, but isn't that remarkably similar to the story of the printing block and Teresa Higginson that happened yeah. to Anne and I? There's quite a few, yeah. Yeah. I can fully relate to that, Graham, because, and we've talked about it on the show previously, We had, I had um, a first-hand experience that was very similar. Did, what, what was this printing block? Uh, this took place on uh, Park Gate on the Wirral. And um, very, very long story short, it involved a former Catholic lay uh, sister, not a nun, um, who is in the process still of being um, beatified uh, towards sainthood. And we were investigating the story and we were then on the receiving end of a series of very strange experiences. Um, not not dissimilar to what you've just described. Wow. So, but I've, I've we've had so many of these little things happen to us yeah. like this. That, it, you know, it, it, they yeah. It's um, and what we what we've we, um, what we sometimes. Well, I mean, we we half joke about it that we don't talk about it very often because when we talk about it, more weird stuff starts to take place. Yeah, that's what happened to that. It's almost I mean, like we've we've sometimes described it as um, it's kind of like something's messing, something bigger than us is messing around with us, pushing us around like pawns in a chess game. Well, that's what I thought. And again, this comes back to these fates. These women trying to these this me and I group being mainly women trying to change the lot for women by influencing the fates by changing fate in some way and. When would these weird things kept happening to us? We just described it as the whatever, because I mean, we had absolutely no, what could do that. Yeah, but the part I find I, intriguing. I, I, I wish I could answer it, but as I say, having been on the receiving end of it um, and had first-hand experiences like you, that were very similar to what you've just described, um, I can I can fully understand. But, your, but the intriguing, intriguing part of it, Steve, 
is is that they he has video of that is that is uh, although it, um, bear in mind we had the printing block oh that's true too right that yeah. disappeared so it's not just a mental thing it's a physical no, thing we we actually had a physical um yeah. material object that when um at, at at a point where it was appropriate it disappeared and has gone forever nobody can find it anymore we had a, we we had an entire monument appear in a church that wasn't there before yeah. i mean we've oh, been wow. looking one of these these uh, the group's leaders was a woman called Mary Heath, who was um, the leader of the Indian I group briefly in the early 1870s. And we were looking for her grave. Now, we, not just me, but many other people that I know had actually gone into the church at St. Lawrence Church in Bidolf looking for Mary Heath's grave. The warden actually said to us, well, there's no uh, grave for Mary Heath. We discovered that she'd actually died in London, so maybe she was buried there. But it was really odd that there was nothing on the walls, you know, commemorating her when there were with other people that weren't necessarily buried in that church. Until one day, Jodie and I went back there to look at the, to, to, to look for uh, about the grave of Laura Heath, one of the other leaders of the group after Mary, to see this massive great um, monument in one corner of the church, a huge great thing about sort of eight feet high with two angels and a, a Jesus figure there. And um, underneath it, it says dedicated to Mary Heath. And, you know, what? That wasn't yeah. there. And somebody said, did you ever take pictures of when it wasn't there? I said, well, why would you take pictures of something that wasn't there? Yeah, right. See, we've got no proof of this, but I can I could drag out a whole load of people who said, I, we went there looking for Mary Heathgrave. We couldn't find it. Again, 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 our own experiences echo that and mirror it. Um, where you're, if, if you're probably, you can probably hear the, the, the in my voice, a real struggle to try and explain it because it's it's so I I actually don't understand what happened to us. And so it's very difficult to convey that to somebody who wasn't there because there isn't the proof. We don't have the printing block. We don't have the hard evidence, the photographs that that can verify what we witnessed. And but, so it, it does start to just sound like a crazy mad story. But it's well, we say kind of... in the book that we bet these things happen to other people. It's just that they're not really reported because they're so crazy. Well, how do you but report it... it? But isn't it kind of like the Mandela effect, though, where people swear that something occurred or didn't occur, and and yet in proof, in reality, it did or it didn't. You know That's what I mean? right. It's, it's it's similar, yeah. But I mean, the Mandela effect is basically when a group of people, I mean, it comes about because of Nelson Mandela, the South African leader, right. who, when he became president, there was people throughout the world who swore they'd read about him dying in prison. Exactly. And how could he become president? And it's known as a Mandela effect, where loads of people share a false memory because of Chinese whispers or whatever you want to call it, you know, <laughs> false information going around. But the things that happened to us were so crazy that at first we thought that's what it was, but certainly when the date seemed to change, when the when the fire had occurred. Mm -hmm. But um, I, the, well, there I mean, was one particular interestingly, date. this these ideas are actually supported by by science. 
by some scientists, I should I should I, uh, clarify that, because it does touch upon the quantum realities, the the multidimensional, um, the multiverse, in effect, um, that whether we are actually stepping backwards and forwards between different versions of reality. Well, we might, often, I mean, and it's often so, been um, said the moment you think of something, um, you know, according to multiverse theory, if you can think of something like Michelle Obama being a man, then that makes it then that becomes a fixed reality somewhere. Well, this yeah, is what um, was is known as the many worlds theory in, in quantum physics. And many quantum physicists believe that right. virtually for everything that could happen, something else could happen, just as you say. And it's accepted yeah. by many scientists. What they won't accept is that we'll ever have access to these other realities. But right. there's things right. that have happened to you and happened to me suggest that they we do have access to them. It might but, be a good explanation for the time slip phenomena. And I know that my colleague... Dr. Winsper is is looking at that possibility. Um, yeah, as you know, we call it time slips or hauntings because the two of them are clearly, you know, you're almost describing the same phenomena when you talk about a haunting or a time slip. Um, you know, you're only talking the only difference really is how it's experienced. But and it, are we just crossing temporal? dimensional boundaries well we seem to have one thing that happened when we were in the egyptian uh the egyptian tomb temple thing at bidolf grange when we were there with two members of the national trust who were we were thinking that there might have been another room behind the wall in there that might have been bricked up and when the the, the national trust guy was banging on the door the wall um, this banging seemed to come back from the other side, which was obviously impossible. And then he said, hello. And you could hear this woman's voice. We actually, but this was on film, this woman's voice saying, hello, back. And we're thinking, what? How is that? And we thought, could it be an echo coming around from some, the way the building was? We couldn't find any explanation for it. And on another occasion, when Jodie was filming me just talking about the, the place, when the film was seen afterwards, there was like what clearly looks like a woman in maybe an old Victorian type of um, uh, blouse with a high neck, a collar, turning and looking at me as I walk past. Some people who see that video say, nah, that's nothing, it's just an effect of the light. Whereas other people can see it quite clearly. I mean, I don't know. Was that some kind of time slip thing? I don't know. Mm. That's Unfortunately... That that's the question, isn't it? We just don't know. But uh, the question, the question say, is, we, we have to wrap it up. We are. So I was just going to throw it back to Graham to tell us the title of the book and where they can get it from. It's called Strange Fate by Graham Phillips and Jodie Russell, and it's available on Amazon.co.uk or Amazon.com. Great. Well, I want to thank you so much. I mean, we could have definitely gone on much further, and, and your other books are fascinating, too. We'll have to have you come back sometime if you're up yeah, to it. Yeah, because I want to find out which of the monuments on Anglesey the Virgin Mary is under. And, um, oh, right, well, yeah. I know that well. one. It's been a very thoroughly nice discussion. Yeah, I know, I know Anglesey very well. Anyways, we do have to wrap it up. So, uh, Graham, I want to thank you so much for joining us. And once again, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? 
grahamphillips.net. Yes, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Uh, quite enjoyable. Anyways, uh, today you've been listening to Ghost Chronicles uh, International with Steve Parsons and uh, Ron Kolick here on the other side of the pond. Uh, and our special guest has been Graham Phillips. We are brought to you by Circles of Wisdom, 286 Merrimack Street, Methuen, Massachusetts, the Glant Messier Family Law Group, 15 High Street, North Andover, Massachusetts. And our very, very good friends on Ghost Chronicles Radio on Patreon. Become a member uh, of the Ghost Chronicles Radio on Patreon, a member of the Dedia Society, and uh, help support the show. Plus, you get access to over 50 exclusive uh, videos and other crap that's on there. So there you go. So uh, anyways, stay tuned for Ghost Chronicles. What is it? Next Generation with uh, Christopher Rodino. is isn't a legend hunter here on this side of the pond. And so we'll go into a little bit about that. So Graham, thank you once again. And you have a great night. Steve, fascinating stuff. Thank you for thank helping. Thank you, Graham. Thank you, guys. Good night, all, and uh, stay safe, and uh, let's go out to the people out in Nottingham as well. So, you know, good night, and God bless. to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord.